This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome. About once a month, we have a program where we just uh, have such a backlog that we feel like tackling that instead of maybe having a guest. We're just going to get a shovel out and start digging. Now, we do note that unlike a lot of other programs, we have kind of a set piece that we follow at the top of a show, which is to make a special announcement as needed. Talk about this day in history. Throw in a quote, a quip, a joke, a stat, an anecdote, and some good news if we can find any, after which we sometimes jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly, after which we sometimes address letters to the editor, after which we may do some follow-up, after which pretty much anything goes. And in the 58 minutes we have to use per show, it generally breaks down to maybe 13 or 14 minutes for what I just mentioned and maybe something like 44 minutes for the rest. So now let's illustrate each of these points, starting with our special announcements. First of all, Edward McMillan has now graduated from his rehab class. And I want to add, sir, that it's good to see you back again in men's clothing. No, I'm just kidding, of course. Our, our special announcement is even odder than that. It is that today marks show number 656, per what is available on our website, radioparallax.com. Although, yes, we admit a few of the earliest shows have not yet made it onto uh, the website. What this does mean, in the 10 shows from now, we're going to hit show number 666. Which we think is a golden opportunity to produce a special program dedicated to Lucifer, Beelzebub, the Devil, Satan. And no, Mr. Millen, Dick Cheney does not qualify for that list. But, you know, we gave it some thought. We came to conclude that you know, the devil's gotten a bad press. Or at least the potential is that the devil has gotten a bad press. And whether he has or hasn't, he's certainly an interesting figure, wouldn't you say? So we plan to spend most of that show taking a look at the fallen angel and the extensive history that surrounds him. Or is it her? And frankly, you know, we're open to some suggestions on how we're going to conduct that program. And if you have any feel free to drop a line at info at radioparallax.com. Meanwhile, let's commence the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date being the 15th of January. Red Letter Day in radio, for it was on January 15th in 1907 that the American inventor, Dr. Lee DeForest, widely regarded as the father of radio and the grandfather of television, patented the Audion radio tube, which made wireless broadcasting feasible. Although, we do believe there is a bit of hanky-panky involved in the invention of the Audion tube, which I believe was quite well covered in the wonderful Ken Burns special, Empires of the Air. We've never had Ken Burns on this program, although we're huge fans, but, you know, we'll see what we can do. Red Letter Day in comedy as well, for it was on January 15th in 1918 that the English-born comedian Stan Laurel first started work with the Hal Roach Movie Studio. In late 1926, director Leo McCary suggested that the skinny Laurel team up, team up with the rotund comic Oliver Hardy, and a classic team was born.
This date in 1962, the British Meteorological Office adopted the Celsius scale of temperature, 220 years after it was first devised by the Swedish scientist Anders Celsius. Also known as the centigrade scale, we take the policy here at Radio Parallax that the Celsius scale is inferior to that of the Fahrenheit system when it comes to describing both weather and body temperature. And it might be a good time to mention that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily reflect those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. And finally, it was on January 15th in 1992, which doesn't seem all that long ago, that Tim Berners-Lee, inventor of the World Wide Web, releases the first web browser on the internet. Our quote of the day comes from Ambrose Bierce, who said, Speak when you are angry, and you will make the best speech you will ever regret. Which is augmented by our quip of the day from Jerry Seinfeld, who said, Sometimes the road less traveled is less traveled for a reason. Our joke of the day comes from David Letterman, who said, According to a new study, a nap at work is healthy. Said Dave, A nap at work is healthy? Call me when it's healthy to drink at work. Our anecdote of the day, or our sort of anecdote of the day, comes from the website News From Me, our favorite blog, produced on a daily basis by Hollywood writer Mark Evanier. Thumbing through it a couple days ago, I spotted a house that looked very familiar, and it turned out it was Ray Bradbury's house, which we had occasion to visit for this program some years ago. We conducted a wonderful interview with Mr. Bradbury, which he was gracious to uh, extend to us. But noted Mark Evanier, Ray Bradbury lived for much of his life in a lovely little home in the Cheviot Hill area of Los Angeles, not far from where I grew up. The address was never much of a secret when I was about 12. A friend of mine and I walked over to it, then walked back and forth a few times. I guess we were hoping to spot him coming in or out, and then we'd wave to him and he'd talk to us and invite us in and give us autographed books, or well, I'm not sure what we were hoping would happen. We would have been happy just to catch a glimpse of him, but we settled for the closeness of knowing we were walking past his home. Said Evanier, later I got to know him. A few times when he was at comic or sci-fi conventions, I'd offer to save him the cab fare and drive him home. Ray Bradbury didn't drive. Twice, maybe three times, he invited me in and we talked for a while. So there was something a bit magical to me about that home, which I think is very cool that I had a chance to be in that home and see some of the memorabilia, which was just everywhere. And if you did not catch our interview with Mr. Bradbury, I would suggest you might want to check it out on our website at radioparallax.com. Going from his home over to the immortal Norman Corwin's house in a nearby area of Los Angeles was probably one of the best days we ever had in radio. And Mr. Corwin's interview is also available in our archives. Our good news story for the week is as follows. A Middle Eastern company has unveiled a fetching new line of Lycra leotards for your racing camel. This allegedly improves the performance of camels at the racetrack. And camel racing is, of course, popular across the Arab world. And the Abu Dhabi-based firm Al-Shibla says its compression suits can give an animal an edge by boosting blood flow to muscles. Unless you think this is just a guy thing, this same company has also pitched its leotards to camel owners who enter their beasts in regional beauty contests. Yes, necessity, the mother of invention. For our stats of the day, let's go to the Harper's Index, something we like to do on a semi-regular basis. According to Harper's, the number of prison inmates per thousand people in China is 
1.2. The number of prison inmates per 1,000 people in Russia is 4.8. The number of prison inmates per people in the state of Louisiana is 13.4. How about percentage of U.S. population that the average American says is Muslim? That would be 15. The percentage that actually is, is in fact 1. But from the your tax dollars at work <laughs> category, well, you have to like the following two pieces. First of all, amount that the United States Navy paid the brother of a naval intelligence officer in 2012 for 349 MK-15 silencers. That would be $1,675,000. Offset by the total amount these 349 MK-15 silencers actually cost in parts and labor. That was, in fact, $10,000. Think there's a bit of profiteering going on in America's great war machine? All right, let's jump into the good the bad and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week for low expectations. Although I think we would rechristen this, it was a bad week for the merchants of discontent, with the revelation that a Pew Research Center survey of 48,000 people in 44 countries found that people in poorer nations in Africa and South America were more likely to say they were having, quote, a good day than people in Europe, Asia, or the United States. Why do you suppose that is? We believe it has a great deal to do with the coveting of thy neighbor's goods which despite being a commandment of the Holy Bible, seems to simultaneously be the backbone of the advertising industry. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for those who would like to see fat boy New Jersey Governor Chris Christie as the Republican nominee for president. Apparently, Christie found himself the object of ridicule last week when he was caught on camera sharing a fawning embrace with Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones after Dallas's initial victory in the NFL playoffs. A lifelong Cowboys fan, Christie enjoyed the game from the billionaire owner's luxury box having been flown from New Jersey in Jones's private jet. Now, this trip has raised some ethical questions since New Jersey law specifically forbids the governor's acceptance of gifts from anyone doing business with the state. And yes, by the way, the Cowboys do own a company with rights to a One World Trade Center observation deck operated by the Port Authority, which is jointly controlled by Chris Christie. Now, Christie's office said he was permitted by law to accept gifts from, quote, personal friends, unquote. His brother said critics were just jealous, adding they would sit with the owner of their favorite team in a heartbeat. So I guess that's not exactly coveting thy neighbor's goods so much as coveting thy neighbor's access to a skybox. Oh, and by the way, Dallas lost the next week in the playoffs. In fact, last Sunday to the Green Bay Packers due to a controversial call that pretty much by everybody's account turned a reception into a non-reception. And while we hate to see a questionable call change the outcome of a sports event, we take the position that if it has to happen, let it happen to the Dallas Cowboys. 
And we'd have to segue from that into the fact that we would call it an ugly week last week for, well, moving the scientific football down the playing field (laughs) with the news that scientists at the Oregon Health and Science University fed a group of zebra finches a juice spiked with alcohol. And they carefully raised the songbirds' blood alcohol levels to 0.08, which I guess would make them technically drunk drivers if they got behind the wheel. Now, we do want to note that anyone who's made a late-night visit to a karaoke bar knows what alcohol can do to a singer's voice. But leave it to these scientists in Oregon to ponder whether the same thing is true for zebra finches. And yes, dear listener, it turns out this is research has revealed that humans aren't the only species to be affected by booze this way. It turns out that once buzzed, the finches began to slur their songs, resulting in decreased amplitude and increased entropy, which is your fancy way of saying their singing became less forceful and more disorganized. And I'm sorry to note that I'm unable to answer Mr. McMillan's query as to whether the male finches in this study were more aggressively wooing the female finches, but I guess research in this area will just have to continue. And yes, we do sniff out the makings of an Ig Nobel Award in this research. And apparently this may have some application in the field of alcoholism study because lead researcher Christopher Olson told NPR.org, At first we were thinking that the birds wouldn't drink on their own because a lot of animals just won't touch the stuff. But they seemed to tolerate it pretty well and were somewhat willing to consume it. Somewhat willing to consume it? Hasn't anybody seen drunk blackbirds fresh from the uh, partially fermented pyracantha berries? I know in the Bay Area, a lot of bird strikes on windows and cars were attributed to their being legally drunk on pyracantha, which is frankly a clear violation of FAA statutes specifying that there must be an eight-hour interval between bottle and throttle. All right, among our letters to the editor, we have the following sent to us by Jeff. Hi, Douglas. I listen to and greatly enjoy your show on KZFR, our community-supported radio station in Chico. I've heard many surprising and humorous facts on your show, but I have to say, the bit on water use for alfalfa really amazed me. Well, Jeff, that makes two of us. Now I understand why it is said that beef production demands an estimated 3,430 gallons of water just to produce one steak. Well, Jeff, hold the phone. We're going to return to this topic in our second segment today and expand on that article, which, uh, which I didn't have time to talk about very much on last week's program. We do want to note there was a piece appearing two days ago uh, on the Internet. I'm trying to think of the source on this. It's not in front of me, but it was talking about how uh, hedge funds are planting almond trees everywhere in California because, well, there's a big profit in almonds these days. We would note that every almond you consume a gallon of water to produce. If you buy one of those little packets of almonds, uh, which are very popular and I enjoy them, they contain about 40 almonds, which is about the same amount of water you need to do a load of laundry. Anyway, we'll come back to that in our second segment. Let's close with some follow-up items from previous programs. We were making fun of the Russians for the fact that for 15 years in a row, Vladimir Putin was named uh, something like their most interesting person. Well, Apparently, there's a great admiration for Putin on this side of the Atlantic as well. According to TheAtlantic.com, Russian President Vladimir Putin was the 10th most admired man in America in 2014, according to Gallup's annual survey. He came in ahead, ahead of Mitt Romney, Joe Biden, 
and that perennial favorite, Bono. Now, if you're keeping score, Barack Obama did top the list of most admired people, followed by Pope Francis, Bill Clinton, and the Reverend Billy Graham. By the way, we do have to add one little bonus statistic for today's program because that Putin item came from the noted section in the week, as did this. The new Congress is 80% white, 80% male, and 92% Christian, which makes it one of the most diverse Congresses in our history. The WashingtonPost.com noted that although 20% of the public has no religious affiliation, only 0.2% of Congress claims to be in that category. Now, we mentioned a few weeks back that there had been a study showing that uh, men with deeper voices, more masculine voices, uh, well, they tended to uh, be voted for by other men more often, and uh, CEOs with deeper voices tended to earn more money. Well, apparently this deeper voice thing does not help you if you're pleading a case before the United States Supreme Court. Yes, apparently linguist Alan Yu of the University of Chicago decided to explore, well, I guess the whole drunken finches thing had been taken up, so he decided to explore what characteristics of male lawyers affect the trial outcomes in cases before the Supreme Court. So apparently he listened to the traditional opening statement, Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. 200 volunteers were lined up to rate those clips according to how masculine they thought the speaker was, as well as how attractive, confident, intelligent, trustworthy, and educated they perceived that voice to be. And after accounting for age and experience, the statistical analysis showed that only one of these traits could predict the court outcome. Lawyers rated as speaking with less masculine voices were more likely to win. And yes, we have no explanation for how Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, would prevail. But heck, what do we know? Maybe that's how they stopped the vote count back in Florida 2000. Mr. Chief Justice, this vote recount just has to stop. Anyway, our final item is as follows. Alarmed by a 90% decline in monarch butterfly populations, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is taking steps toward adding the iconic black and orange insects to the official list of endangered species. Monarchs, which are known for their annual 3,000-mile multi-generational migration across parts of Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, and yes, there are trees down in Pacific Grove near Monterey where the monarchs tend to congregate and put on quite a spectacle every year. Well, the whole migration's been in dramatic decline for the past two decades, falling from a peak of roughly 1 billion butterflies in the mid-90s to just 33 million today. Yes, a 30-fold reduction. It's been noted that a confluence of factors, including climate change and deforestation, has contributed to this steep decline, but experts say the most catastrophic cause is the widespread use of the industrial-grade herbicide Roundup, which is killing the milkweed plants that provide the monarch's sole source of nourishment. Tim Curry, senior scientist with the Center for Biological Diversity, told the LA Times that an endangered species declaration could be a turning point for the monarch. Noted that these are the butterflies we used to chase through our backyards as kids. Nobody wants to see them gone. Although we would speculate that Monsanto, the makers of Roundup, could probably stand to be a little more concerned about this drop in monarch populations. 
But it may be time to start planting milkweed, folks. Uh, it's not a big seller in nurseries because it has the word weed in it, but people are calling it butterfly plants and trying to get folks to uh, to make up for the loss of the habitat of the milkweed thanks to, uh, well, I think it has to do with the cornfields in the Middle East with this Roundup-ready corn that, that they just use to then slather the whole environment with Roundup, kill everything else off, including the milkweeds. In fact, in my neighborhood last night, uh, they convened a group to talk about what could be done to help the monarch. Say the loss of butterflies does strike this correspondent as uh, pretty horrifying. Talk to anybody of a certain age. And when, when I say that, I think I mean anyone born in the 30s, 40s, 50s, or maybe even 60s, and ask them if they've noticed a steep decline in the number of butterflies in our environment, and they will say, yeah. I'm going to see if I can't do my part to uh, get some more milkweeds planted out in my environment. And, and you might want to consider doing the same, dear listener. Anyway, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's come back and talk more about water. Water. 